was the gallery open all day today? I'm not sure what galleries you mean, though, but because I have a website gallery and that's open all, <laughs> all day and night, of course. But I also am a curator at the Chino Chino Art Space in Sanes. It's a local town here. And that's open, yes, the whole day. Your Sundero Art Gallery. Yes, I do run a gallery. It's a website gallery. That's Sund. How do you pronounce it? Sundera. Sundera. Yeah. Okay. It's from a small island on the north of Norway. So you couldn't miss that one because of my name, because there are very, very few persons. It did seem rather unique, I must admit. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, then give me a little bit of backstory. So let's go take it back a step. So what are all the different roles that you're currently playing in the arts field? Well, how many hours do you have? Uh, you know, I took a caffeine pill. I got as long as you want. <laughs> well, I'm not going to joke. Actually, at the moment, I have four or five jobs, something like that. I have the website gallery, as you know. I have a part-time job, half a job as a curator at Chino Chino Sanes, where we have this fantastic exhibition right now. And I also, I'm working for two municipalities, maybe three, trying to find out what art do they possess in the municipality, taking photos and recording it and putting all the, the facts and also some small artistic views of the artworks out on a website that's a national website. So let me get this straight, though. There are these municipalities that have so much, so many pieces of art in a collection, they don't even know what they have. All of the municipalities in, of Norway, I think, works the same because they have started many, many years ago buying this and that, and they haven't recorded it. And, well, the, it's maybe on a paper in a drawer somewhere, which a person that left some years ago had. It's like that. I know those kinds of situations, yes. Yeah, I know they are trying to find out at this elderly home what is there and the kindergartens and the schools and town buildings and so on and so on. So you're talking about not only like public art and murals, but you're also talking about like just like pieces of art that are hanging on walls and offices and so like literally everything they own. Everything, yeah. That's great. And so this will be available online at some point? Yeah, it's a national website. So if you are in another part of Norway or wherever you are, you can just join in and see this municipality has this artist. And it's kind of pilot work. So we are trying to find ways of communicating this to the audience. So if you are, for instance, a teacher at the school, then you can take a walk in your neighborhood and find the art that's there. Oh, that should be easy enough, like GPS coordinates, like linking through to some mapping system could easily be achieved these days. Yeah, that's all right. That's exactly what we are trying to do now. But first, we have to find out where it is. It's true. Yes, you must know the actual location of something in order to include it on a map, for sure. Yes. And the artist and so on, because very, very rarely there are signs on the art so you don't know if you don't know the artist then you don't know who's made it 
Agreed. Yes, that is a difficult position to be in. So, like, so you, so you're saying that the Norwegian municipalities own a bunch of artwork that they don't even know they have, and they're not even sure who made them, or for that matter, like when they got them or how they got them or anything like this. Yes and no. Some of it they know, and they are being more conscious about this now. And there is this law in Norway that says if you are building a new building or refurbishing an old one, that then there should be so much money going to art. And then you have a competition and you invite artists and so on. And then you have documents of the whole process. Sure. Yeah. What's the, is it like we have a thing like that in the United States? We have like 1% for the art. So like, is it something like that? Yeah. Something like that. Like, uh, yeah. A, a valuation of a percentage of the amount of money being put into either building or reconstructing the building. Yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, there has been leaders that have thought that maybe we should have an artwork here. And the next leader says, no, I don't like that one. So I put it in the basement or whatever. And where did it go? <laughs> Sadly, I know that situation all too well. Like we, it, it happens too frequently, uh, quite honestly, in the arts world. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it's quite sad, I think. I'm even thinking of stuff in my own family home where like like my parents are like, oh, this doesn't match our living room anymore. And they just put it in the attic and we forget about it for a decade or something. Yeah, something like that. And the problem is, of course, two things, actually. One thing is the artist and the artwork and the value of that. And the other thing is that those artworks, they belong to the public. They are public property. so. The audience or everyday man and woman should know about them and be able to see them. Yes. I mean, well, some of the bigger problems would be conservation, though, because, like, I mean, you know, I could just imagine the amount of sculptures that some politician said, I don't like this thing, throw it in the attic or the basement or the boiler room, and now it's all rusted and covered in whatever. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, these kinds of issues arise all too frequently. Not only that, but you can have large paintings. And when you come to see it, there is a pile of chairs in front of it. Or on top of it. Yeah, on top of it or anything like that. And it's ruined. Yeah. Well, but the, and that's, well, okay. So, wait, I, I'm fascinated. So, like, do, so do municipalities need to, like, insure this art? Is that a concern also? No, I don't think they can do that, actually. Or yes and no. They do have an insurance. Being a municipality, they do have an insurance. But that it's just to say that if it's a fire or another damage of kinds, you will just put it as if it was a chair or a lamp or whatever. Most often, I think you will not replace it. Yeah, no, probably not. Yeah, no. Well, good that they have some insurance, but bad that it's not actually good insurance. Well, I think the insurance as such is not a problem. The problem is that do the politicians really want to replace it or do they want to use the money on something else? Well, that comes into the point of like, is the heritage and the history of whatever that thing was more important than the idea of potentially like reinvesting it in something newer or bigger or whatever that can be newly installed if there were this said natural catastrophe? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a large field, actually, and it's a lot of problems and a lot of questions around it. For instance, the problem with the gifts from audience. For instance, I value this artist, but I don't have any room for it, so I just give it to the municipality. And they don't know what to do with it, of course. So many people do that, and they think they're doing such a nice thing by giving this gift, and the, the municipalities are just like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, we don't have any walls. We don't know yeah, what to do with it. Or they just don't like it. Like It just, it just doesn't work. And it's not worth anything, maybe, either. It is to the person who gifted it. Maybe somebody's aunt or something like have made it once. And they don't want it anymore. Yeah, I know. I mean, I've heard stories about museums and such and collections turning down good don't, you know, gifts and stuff because, I mean, they, they don't understand that by gift, like if an artist or a family member gifts something to a collection or a municipality or anything like this, you kind of have burdened them with the responsibility of maintenance yeah. and storage. Holy crap. Could you imagine how much pay they're paying in storage for all this stuff? Yeah, and often people think that there should be a gallery for this collection. And just imagine the impacts of that. Well, that would be amazing if there's enough good quality stuff to be able to have. Like, I mean, a, a standing alone sort of the, just like permanent installation gallery would get a little boring. So like it would still need to have something more and rotating to it. Yeah, and sometimes that's the case. I do know collections that has been given from the artists to a municipality, and it's kind of open gift. It said that it would be nice with a gallery, but please don't make it into a museum. Yeah, I think I guess that's the difference: museum versus gallery. And you have the other, the opposite also, where maybe the children of an artist says that here is the gift, all the major paintings. Don't do anything new to it. And show everything at the same time, for all time, yeah, for the next hundred years. Yes, and and you incur all the costs. Yes, yeah. So many sides of this. It's such, whew, wow. That is interesting. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing because I mean, it, the thing that bothers me about it. I used to run a public arts program, a, a public sculpture program, and things like this, and like I loved putting the sculptures together. I love being part of the selection committee. I loved doing lots of aspects of it. It was great fun as a, you know, a creative person. The part that was the worst is dealing with the fucking politicians because they don't give a shit. Like they don't see the benefit of art. Like basically what I'm getting to is like the combination of putting art and politics very rarely works very well. Well, I do agree to a certain extent, but not totally. I should say in America. Well, well, it can be like that in Norway too, of course. But it depends on the politicians. But of course, some politicians are very, very interested in art. It does seem like a cultural thing that you all have a great amount of support and caring for your creative industries across the board versus America. Yeah, and I think, as I said, I have several jobs and one of the jobs is at the school where I have been a curator of putting together art collection. It's just an ordinary school for kids from 14 to 16 
But we now have this huge collection of art, contemporary art. Okay, wait, slow down a second. Your what I would call like a public high school. So this is you know like ninth through twelfth grade kind of age range. Your public high school has an art collection, not just has an art collection, but has enough of an art collection to pay a curator to curate it. No, and yes, again. It's never easy with you, isn't it? It's never easy. But I'm quite old, and I find that everything depends on persons, not so much of systems. So if you have a person that's interested enough in art or whatever, you can do amazing things. And at this school, we had this headmaster, and she was really interested in art. And she was a fantastic person in that whenever she would have a vacant position, she would interview teachers or whatever and ask, but what do you do in your spare time? This is your education and this is your formal writer, but what do you do when you want to relax? Do you play anything? Do you play football? Do you play at a music instrument? Are you interested in art or whatever? And then she used that in her school. She said that, okay, you are going to be a librarian like I was or are, but you are interested in art. And I, as a headmaster, am very interested in art. And we kind of put our heads together and thought, when do young people see contemporary art? Never. Never, ever do they do that. I disagree. I was exposed to contemporary art very young. I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I went to the Smithsonian on a regular basis. So. You are talking about Norway now. I know. I'm, I'm saying, like, yeah. Yeah, we are very keen on nature and tracking and going and skiing. Not so much on culture. Well, just to be clear, too, you're not in Oslo either, so you're not even, like, major metropolitan area Norway. No, no, no. Even in Oslo, they go walking instead of seeing art. Really? Yeah. That's the Norwegian way. Good for them. That's very healthy. No questions about that. A healthy body and a healthy mind and all this. Yes. But contemporary art, if you have our parents, you go to a museum and you say, you see Monk or the National Museum or something like that, but never contemporary art. Almost never. I'm talking a bit loud now. But what we realized was that if young people were going to see contemporary art, they had to see it where they are. And where are they? Everybody is at school. Well, then we buy. Well, legally, they should be anyways. <laughs> yeah. There are laws for that in, yeah, in Oregon. Yeah, so we just started buying art. That's astounding, though. I mean, I'm sure, don't get me wrong, I'm sure none of the works is like, blue chip you don't have like damien hurst and jeff coons or anything we have replica of jeff coons yes thank you for asking <laughs> wow didn't even know i was leading that one okay but we have major artists yes and we have had five or six big artworks made specially for us My God, that, i'm i'm sort of gobsmacked at the idea of a public school having an art collection seems quite um, unnatural, <laughs> like not normal, I guess. No, it's not. But why shouldn't it be? 
I'm all for it. I agree with the, the concept behind it, but I'm just very surprised. I mean, I come from schooling, especially public schools, that would never allow something like the government funds to be spent on that when they're sitting there like, the children don't have pencils, you know, <laughs> but, you know, so you can't spend it on art kind of thing. So, yeah, but that's the thing, you know, that's we didn't use the public fundings for the school to do that. We applied for money. Because Stavanger, where this school is, was a European cultural capital in 2008. And then we started applying for fundings and got quite a lot. And the next year and the next year and so on. I'm sure. The program sounds amazing. I'd, I, would, I would hope it got funded. Yeah, we did. So we actually didn't spend anything of the school budget on this. Okay, makes total sense now. Yeah. I was thinking you were like taking money from the education and spending it on an art collection. I'm like, but why shouldn't you do that? That's a good question, I think, because this is about educating the whole person, not only parts of it. You're preaching to the choir on this. I'm a professor, so like, I'm I'm in agreement with you because I mean, I'm but say I I also come from, in America. They are cutting. Music budgets, theater budgets, um, you know, art, of course, visual arts budgets, because they think that it's not important. They think that only like STEM education is the primary stuff that people have to learn and they don't want to teach anything other than what they think is necessary, which goes back to your point about like well rounded people kind of thing. You know, like music is an amazing way to learn how to think because it makes you sort of think in different ways and same with visual arts and all these others. So yeah, I'm on your side. I think it's a great idea. I wish more places would pick it up. Yeah. We were basically thinking, you know, in Norway we have the system that a school can choose one or two or three subjects that you should dive into besides all the other ones. And our school had this school show that we had had for years. And then it was natural to think that culture was one of the main areas to, to focus on. When we realized that we were only focusing on, I'm saying only as a quote, on music and dancing and so on, and the theater thing, not the visual art, then we started to think we have to do something about that too. And it wasn't that the school show wasn't amazing because there are this gym gymnasium where you play football or whatever you have 230 to 50 students making a show maybe 9000 people come and see it you have 18 shows a week and there are just ordinary students plain ordinary students yeah i mean it's amazing in education how much money they'll spend on sports arenas sporting locations and facilities and stuff and then the lack of money that they will put into something like the creative industries whatever they are so music theater arts i mean okay fine usually a school will invest in like a nice amphitheater at least kind of thing we don't have that seriously no no okay hmm I'm trying to think about yeah cuz like all the schools I went to had a a proper sort of theatrical theater even though they were public schools but they did not have an art collect contemporary art collection. For many years ago I met some Russians. I was working in a newspaper then and 
always a good start to a story. Years ago, I met some Russians. <laughs> That's a really good start. They were journalists too, and I were to pick them up when they came and have them come to our newspaper for a cup of coffee and a chat and so on. And when I parked my car, we parked beside a huge building containing sports, of course, a swimming hall and so on and so on. And they were kind of flabbergasted over the big newspaper in this small town until I said, it's not that building, it's the building on the other side of the road, the small one. It's a small house, actually. And then one of the Russians said something I have never, ever forgotten after that. He said, oh, we have a Russian saying, the things that goes on inside a building should be greater and bigger than the house itself. Agreed, yeah. So why do you need an amphitheater if you want to do things anyway? You just do it. Well, theaters are tough too because like they exist 24 hours a day, but at best they're utilized, you know, maybe 4 to 6 hours a day. So like, <laughs> same with sporting locations, like they're not utilized enough for the sheer volume of space they're taking up and energy they're using and all this kind of stuff. But anyways, we're not here for that to to criticize those things. No, and we are not going to have more money for art because we criticize the sports. So yeah, it's futile. Yes, they will not take the money away from them and give it to us. No, no, they won't. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit, though. I want to talk about your online gallery. So it, it, so just to be clear, no brick-and-mortar gallery space, purely 100% online. Yeah. Okay, love it. How has it been, go- been going for the last year with COVID? Has there been good, bad, better, worse? It's been almost the same, I think. But I think what has changed a bit is that suddenly we have gotten mails from a museum, for instance, that wanted to buy something from us and someone from USA wanted to buy something. And yeah, so I think maybe people are spending more time by their computer now than they... (laughs) Oh, yeah, they are. Yes. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Okay, well, so like you're in Norway, and most of your artists, I took a look through the roster, are primarily Norwegian. So, is is your clientele primarily Norwegian, or do you, do you, what do you, like how much of your sales are international, and how much are sort of local kind of stuff? I would suspect that most of it is from Norway, maybe ten percent from abroad. Interesting. Something like that, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I wonder why that is. I think many people are not used to buy art online. And I'm not talking about art that, like photos or anything like that. We have many copies of the same artwork, but original works, they are not used to. I don't believe I've ever bought original artwork without seeing it in person. No. And that's a major obstacle, of course, because people are not used to that. So what we do, we sell original art, but not the very expensive art online, abroad. Like original comics, for instance. Right. I saw you had an interest in comics and other sorts of things, sort of non-traditional, sort of quote-unquote art mediums. Why did you get into that? Well, 
I learned to read when I was five. My brother taught me, and he taught me by reading comics. I- I'm ignorant. I have no idea. Is five early or late? I don't know. It's not very early. It's early-ish. Yeah, not very early, but yeah. Usually, when you're my age, you would have learned to read when you are seven. Okay. Yeah. But I was a keen reader and a keen performer too, I think. So I was trying to read aloud from the comics for everybody who wanted to listen and everybody who didn't want to listen also, maybe. So I was fascinated by the combination of pictures and words and have been so ever since. And I just love comics, not only comics, but also what you call illustrated stories, more like novels. Yeah, graphic novels. Graphic novels, yes. And there are so many good ones. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite artists uh, started out in comics and illustrations, and he's now expanded into oil painting and doing other things, but still using his same comic book characters, but in his oil paintings. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Ashley Wood, fabulous artist, like really good artist. But he's he's sort of made a little empire in and of himself. Like so he doesn't work with any galleries or any publishers. He does everything himself in house, which is I'm sure a lot of work. It's a lot of work, it is. Yeah, and you have many of those. It's, it, they are just amazing, I think. And I, I think it has something to do with I I like reading and the story you have in drawings. Not only comics, but also drawings as a whole fascinates me. And that's why I was thinking that maybe photo and drawings would be what I'm going to emphasize in this gallery. I am a photographer by background, and I'm fascinated by the choice to do photography. I find photography to be a very difficult sell in the art world. It is. Okay, good. Yeah, I didn't. And and drawings, too, because when people are not used to seeing art, they look upon drawings as a sketch or a painting, not as an original art, artwork in itself. Yeah, see, as an artist, I love those sketches of like pre-painting kind of things. Like I, I really adore those, as a matter of fact, like almost sometimes more than the finished paintings themselves because you get to see a little bit insight into sort of the idea behind the, the, the thought pattern on how they came to whatever kind of thing. So I love that background stuff. Yeah, and drawing so much and so many things. You have American Gila Pen, for example, who draws with stitches i believe you yeah i have her in my gallery she's just wonderful draws with oh, okay i understand okay so sews together materials she defines them as a drawing uh, it's very liberal very liberal um yeah it doesn't adhere to the tradition yeah but you have many people or many artists doing that redefining what a drawing is you have Anna Bowles, for example, who draws on, on sculptures or makes three-dimensional artworks that she draws upon. And they are, are also just lovely. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of interesting because, like, in the old days, everything was very sort of pigeonholed. Like, you were a sculptor or you were a painter or you were a whatever. And, like, it, in some ways, it's magnificent the amount of interdisciplinary work that's going on these days. But in the equal way, it's also kind of annoying because you kind of want to be able to understand something, like, pretty quickly and easily and fast but every lots of people are trying to sort of make a brand for themselves and somehow like make their thing unique like i i do portfolio reviews and i can't stand it when people say like i came up with this brand new technique that's this you know thing that's never been done before that like when i look at it i'm like yeah i saw people do that in like the 1960s that's not new at all but but everybody's trying to like make their name by somehow being so special and i i think it's a bit too much sometimes it's not only too much it's also it reveals that you really don't know much about art or art history or art history because if you would never say something like that and invented something new because it's all done before well, see, I have this position that I believe no artist should ever say, I invented something new. Because <laughs> because everything that we make, you know, the, the old saying, like, you know, nothing nothing new could ever be created. But it, it's us sort of just taking from other places and other influences and other movements and to whatever, and, and sort of just remixing or reorganizing things in a new way and giving them new context or whatever. Yeah, and it would be... The same if an author were to say that I have invented a new alphabet. Well, I just listened to a podcast about a guy who actually did invent a new language. But yeah, I mean, it's very rare. Yeah, it's very rare. But what you do is you use it in different ways. That's what you do. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that's the thing is like nobody should be saying like uh, your, your technique or your anything is is new and unique like it's not new and unique everything has a, a lineage a history so it's always you're always influenced by something yeah you are or if you weren't then i think you would not have somebody who could receive it in the other end you wouldn't have an audience because nobody would be able to relate to it indeed speaking of that you're also a curator yeah i am <laughs> so Give me a little insight. What, uh, where, what's the place, or who, are you freelance, or do you work for a location? Like, so, what's your role as a curator? Yes, I do all of it. All of it. Yeah, I am also employed at an art space called Chino Chino, which in English would translate into Cinema Cinema. Okay. And the story behind the name is that this used to be a cinema. There are still two small cinemas at this building and two art spaces and also a concert hall. And I am the curator of the art space. So last Saturday, we opened a huge exhibition with Larissa Sansour, who was one of the major artists at last time, Venice Biennial, Palestinian artist. And her works are just amazing. We have four movies and a couple of installations and photos at our place now. And it's the first solo exhibition Samsung has in Norway, so we are quite proud of that. 
Well, and that sort of brings up something that I keep wondering about because uh, I keep talking to a lot of people who are up in Scandinavia in general kind of thing, but Norway is a bit removed from the prominent art world of like London, Paris, New York, all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, and the Asia, I shouldn't be Eurocentric. So, you know, Hong Kong and, and other places. So the, and so like, is it important to have international artists also come into Norway as much as getting Norwegian artists out to the world? Yeah, it's important because, you need to see what artists from abroad, whatever country, are occupied with. How do they think? What are their motives in their art? And what kind of sphere do they move? I think about how do they think and how do they express themselves? And it's also, it's kind of maybe strange to say that because if there is a group of people who are traveling, it's artists. So I would maybe say something that's not popular, but artists of the Western world anyway think quite alike because they are influenced by each other and they travel a lot and they have residences all over. People from Japan, America comes to Norway and Norwegian ones travel to USA and Japan, and, and that's a good thing. But you have some artists like Larissa Sansur, who is a Palestinian, who draws upon her experience as a Palestinian in her works. And that's important to show. It's not very often you have political exhibition in an art space anymore. And this is a political exhibition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to live in the United Arab Emirates. So anything with the word Palestinian on it would be, it was like, a thing to 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 be thought about so yeah but i mean the way you said that you think that the what the eurocentric artists are influenced only by their own history but not enough by the rest of the world is that what you were saying <laughs> yeah to a certain extent yes something is starting to change there i think don't get me wrong. I kind of agree with you. Like I'm sort of thinking about it. I'm like, if I were to sit back and think about all my influences as a person raised in America and taught in art schools in America, I would say my primary influences would definitely be American Eurocentric, not so much Asian or African or even South American for that matter. Central America, yes, because it was close, but... <laughs> But that's it. So, I mean, there is not a lot, you know, like I'm thinking through my art history kind of lectures and stuff, and it was primarily Euro-American centric. Yeah, and it is. And worse also that we are kind of um, colonializing the art world in other places of the world. We only appreciate it. We totally are, because as soon as you said that, I was like, Art Basel is now having a thing in Hong Kong. So, like, yep, that's that's totally colonizing from Art Basel in Switzerland. It's started in Switzerland, right? The, the original? Yeah, yeah, it does, yeah. And, and they now have colonized Hong Kong by doing Art Basel there. And that's awful. And we often appreciate art from, let's say, Asia or the Middle East or where Africa or whatever, if it looks something like the things we do ourselves. 
if we can recognize it and the way of thinking and the way of expressing themselves as something we could have done, just maybe a bit more oriental than that, but not much, then we appreciate it. It's interesting. I'm thinking, again, I'm thinking about like all my experiences, whether or not like I, I appreciated things that were similar. Yeah, kind of. I'd like to think I'm a little more open-minded than the average person though, but uh, yeah, I can, so I can see where you're going with it is when like colonialists went to Asia, like say, so European colonialists went to Asia, they came back with things that would be accepted into the existing whatever. So fashion that would be accepted into the existing stuff, paintings and pottery and things of, of of the similar forms and and, uh, mediums that they already knew because if it was too far away from the norm, people would be like, what am I looking at? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't recognize it as art of value or the sign of value because it doesn't look anything like, things you have seen before well going back to the multidisciplinary like things like the drawings made from sewing kind of stuff like i mean that's it's it's one of the things that like a lot of these changes i think just take time you know i mean everything in the well everything in the world but everything in the arts is ever evolving so like you know what was true 50 years ago is not true anymore oh and i think that's you to traveling a lot and seeing things and interacting. And that's a very good thing. All right. Then I want to get into your, how you are a curator. So like something I like two sides of this. Okay. So like a, how do you find new artists? Conamore. Wait, say that again. What? <laughs> With love. Well, there are so many talented artists there really are. Oh, and there are so many crap artists, just to be balanced. Yeah. Don't want to talk about those. But so many good ones. Yeah. And when you have a gallery, whether it's an online gallery or a gallery space, you can't have them all. It's just, you can. Correct. Yeah. So then you have to choose. And I tend to choose things that I love or interests me, things that I I'm challenged by. Okay. Yeah. Who would enlighten me, maybe, to put it in a kind of, well, I like to be a bit wiser after an exhibition than I was before, either because I have learned something or that I have experienced something, something visual that enlightens me. But uh, beyond that, like sort of the, the the reality like nuts and bolts so like let's say this palestinian artist that you had this exhibition with how did you find this person so like literally how do you find artists do you scour the magazines do you get email newsletters like do you go to the venice biennale and like find these people like how do you literally find people and the answer again is yes it's all of it yeah all of it yeah so Sansu, I found at Venice Biennial in 2019. I was just fascinated. Not only because the techniques she used and to tell a story just technically and also the telling technique, but she had this story about 
basically about what it is to be a human being, what it is to have an identity and to belong to a society. And that's deeply personal, but it can also be read at the level of a, a society or a nation. And all those layers I was just fascinated by. So I went home and thought about her a lot. And last year when I was doing my programming together with my colleague, I said that I really would like to have Larissa Sansur as one of our artists. And we agreed and said, yeah, why not just send her an email? And I did. And she said, yes. Yeah. I mean, the worst they can say is no. Yeah. Or not answer. So basically, that's how I do it. I read a lot, see a lot. I travel a lot to see exhibition. That is when it was allowed to travel. <laughs> it's not so much anymore. But yeah, newsletters, I Google a lot. Well, I mean, because there's such a sheer volume of work in the world. And unfortunately, well, unfortunately slash fortunately, there are like these gatekeepers that, you know, curators who I, I think are the gatekeepers that basically they whittle down the, the millions of artists in the world down to like, these are the ones we think are really worthy of being seen. And then people see them and then they sort of get that little, little snowball effect of continually being seen because then they've been seen. And maybe you saw an exhibition put together by a curator you respect. And so therefore then you say, hey, I respect that curator. They th made the decision to exhibit this person. So I'm going to exhibit the person also. And it's a little bit difficult because it's a little bit of a like a, a, a boys club. Sorry, you're a woman, I know. But like you get the sense of what I mean. Like it, it's like a little closed community that it's really difficult for majority of artists to somehow become part of. Yeah, it is a problematic thing. It's all about power. I think it, that's what you are looking for. And money. And money, yes. Well, not in my case anyway. But I know you have curators and you have curators. So you have curators that earn a lot of money because they have access to galleries that are, that are very renovated. But the gallery I run as a curator belongs to the municipality of Sannes, who is a town close by here. So I get my salary, whatever I do, if I don't work altogether. And I think the major flock of curators are like me. They don't earn a lot of money being curators. They try to do their best, giving something worthwhile for an audience to see or experience. And we also, you asked me, how do I do it? It's not just on a flimsy or something like that when I curate, because I curate also a program for a year or two in advance. And I'm very occupied with thinking about who do I want to present at our gallery. Do I have too many females and not men? What are the ages? Have we a proper representation of native Norwegians, for example? All these things and expressions, uh, drawings, photos, videos. Yeah, in this gallery, we want to have representations from all techniques and 
languages, if you call it that, and also many kinds of artists, as many as we can. Sure. I mean, it, it's funny because it's, to me, that's a very contemporary idea to try intentionally to represent as much as possible. Because, of course, if we look through art history, it's, you know, written by the victors, basically. And so it's a majority like, you know, white male Europeans for centuries. And now there's this very large push to be very representat representative of not only like local communities and cultures, but even ones that aren't uh, readily available in that region. Yeah, it's not easy. And you feel it every day that you have the power to exclude. And that's not a good feeling. Well, that's sort of what I was leading to is like, as much as I think the idea of representation of variety of cultures and whatever, races, cultures, genders, all, all the different criteria for these diverse expressions is great. To a certain extent, it's kind of like, but I, I kind of still, it's not like I wanted to go back to the old way, but I, I want it to be based on simply like merit, like quality work, regardless of who makes it. The reason why I say this is because I, I used to teach in the United Arab Emirates and all my students were women, okay? So Muslim women in the Middle East. And they would always put their work out and say, my work is about being a Muslim woman. And and I was like, well, but I, I always feel like that's be, like a self-segregating in a way, saying like, I'm, I'm not part of the mainstream art market, but I'm this little genre of art market of female artists, of Muslim artists, of the, this kind of stuff. Instead of, and I'm not sure that that's really beneficial to everybody because I feel like to a certain extent it segregates out. So like, so that it becomes, oh, this is the best of female Muslim artists, but not necessarily the best art. But I totally agree. Because that's a very narrowing viewpoint to have as an artist, defining your art as female or lesbian or, or black, female, lesbian or whatever. Not to say anything offending by that, but it's reducing you to one level only. And good art is not one level only. Well, not only that, but I feel like it's sort of an issue of comparative like things like if you're not competing on the market but you're only competing in your niche market then that's like you're not necessarily going to be like people who self-segregate in that way and to me i think they're limiting themselves in that way by saying i'm a female muslim artist okay they could be the best female muslim artist in the world but they're still only like the best of a small group. So like they're not being compared side by side, apples to apples comparison with every rate, every sort of quality and quantity and style of work in the world. And I, f I feel like that's not necessarily the best way to be going. Well, it's not, but it's understandable. But I'm also a white male American, so I'm not sure I'm the right person to be judging this. No, and it's. No, and neither am I the best person to quest if you are right or wrong, because I'm a white female middle-aged person, so I'm just your contrary. Okay, yeah. 
I'm middle-aged also, so we'll go throw that in too. Or beyond that. But, <laughs> but what I'm trying to understand is that you have looked upon all these artists and we have defined art, as you said, as something white male Western artist does. So these women are basically trying to redefine and occupy space by defining them as women, Muslim artists. And maybe not realizing that reduces also their space as artists. And it would reduce it whatever you defined yourself as. And that's, if we were talking about Larissa again, what's fascinated me is that nothing of what she does reduces her to a female Palestinian artist because it's so much more in her artworks and, than that. So many layers. It, it, there's no right answer to this question. No, it, it's not. It, because, I mean, there are pros and cons to choosing to give yourself a, a little definition like that. And there are and there are pros and cons to both sides of it. So like, it, it has its merit, but I, I, I guess maybe I'm just old. No, I think you are partly right. I think we all need to, all the very good artists that I know, their art are based on their own history and their identity. I have some artist friends who, one of them, his family was working with industry and she had parents that worked in a farm and they use this in their art and makes wonderful art. And I think that's it's a very fantastic thing to do, but because they don't say that I am a child of an industrial worker, so that's my field of art. That's not what they do. And I'm all for that. Like, you know, like if these, I'm sorry to pick on my past students, but like so these female Muslim artists made work that like visually expressed the experiences of being a female Muslim artist, whatever kind of different criteria in the work. Fabulous. I'm all for that. My problem is always that they like put it in their resume. They they put it in their CV. They put it in their artist statement. They say, "I'm a female artist. I'm a Muslim artist." Like, or, or you know, and the, this could be true. I'm a black artist. I'm a LGBTQ artist. Whatever. Like, I just, uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure if it's the most helpful thing to like because I, I've said this before to other people. Like, w the arts world is already a small niche community in the grander world and then to self-segregate yourself into even a smaller niche makes it even more difficult than if you were part of a bigger group and so like i just wish the arts would like be more supportive and inclusive instead of i feel the need to segregate even within our small community yeah and i think that's the problem i think that's the reason they are doing this because they don't feel that they belong and they want to occupy space, as I say. So that's the way they do it, to define themselves as something other. I think we've already defined ourselves as something other by saying we're artists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
you're right we have so that i mean that's what i'm saying is like we're already we've already dropped out of like normal society and defined ourselves in the arts as part of the arts world so like to then even continually self you know segregate even to smaller groups i feel like is not beneficial to the entire creative industries so i, I i'm thinking like macro micro at the same time and i'm trying to figure out which is the better way to go well, don't you think that this is a philosophical question, actually, because if you compare it to, let's say, Germany during the Second World War, you can say, yeah, I know that's far-fetched, but, but you can say that, well, we are all Germans. Why well, actually am. Yeah. yeah. So. Or you can say that, well, there are some people here that doesn't belong in this group. There are the Jews, for example, and maybe the the gypsies or the gay people or whatever. And yeah, they don't belong. So maybe we just don't count them. Then. They are not a part of our society. And sooner or later, you have then, if you are a gay person in such a society or a Jew or whatever, you have to define yourself as that and say, well, this is what I am. This is my identity. I still belong here. And in a way, that's what they are doing. They are defining themselves into a bigger community of artists by saying, I am this. Well, I feel like at this point, I put my foot in my mouth a lot. So I'm, we're just going to like drop this topic before I get too <laughs> yeah. dug in too deep a hole. So Yeah, I think the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, let's try and wrap this up. So the, I generally have two questions I ask, which the first one is, do you have three contemporary artists that you would recommend people to be looking at that are somehow inspiring you or you're interested in? No, well, that's a tough one because they are. That you haven't mentioned yet because you already mentioned a couple <laughs> new ones. That's normally something I don't do because I feel it's just not fair because there are so many. But uh, maybe I would name a couple. I will name a Norwegian artist called Johan Nango. Nango is native Norwegian, Sami person. Sami, yeah, I've heard about Sami. Yeah, and he's both an architect and artist. And he combines this in his work. So he's able to make very complicated artworks, inviting people in co-working with him in building rooms of art. So you have this mixture of architecture and also of elements that belongs to the Sami people, belongs to being a nomad, traveling around. That And together, all these things that the exhibition is combined of, he's able to tell something very profound about what it is to be human and what it is to be a Sami person also, and a traveling spirit or nomadic person or whatever. And also a bit about how you can create something together with other people that results in something wonderful. So there are all those layers and ways of thinking of his works that I am very fascinated by. All right. Two more? Well, I have this also a favorite that's local. Fantastic drawer. She's called Grihe Grinaldo. She has these amazing drawings and she uses her body often and again are able to tell something about being a human through to drawing in very 
distorted perspectives, maybe her own body, and she uses herself. And she also is very interested in philosophy and psychology. She uses theories from Freud and many other psychologists in her works. They are just fascinating. Yeah, I was a psychology major for two years in college. Love it. Well, yeah. Look her up. Marvelous. And number three, what would that be? Maybe one of the locals that I just talked about, Jens Allen. If you, if I do this, okay. you see the round thing there? <laughs> it, just a little bit of it. I'm not seeing much. A little bit more, more. Yeah. There it is. Okay. Yeah. Nobody that's listening can see that. But okay. No, I know. But what he's basically doing, he's transferring his own history as belonging to an industry here locally. And he's a ceramic artist. So the thing you see in the middle, in the middle it is, yes. Wait, that, that's ceramic? Yeah, it's not that heavy because what you see around it is kind of... I was going to say, that would be really heavy. <laughs> it's made of paper. Okay. And it's from a huge industrial machine. Not a tractor, but something bigger than that. It's in the fan. Oh, okay. I was thinking it was like a filter or something. Yeah. Yeah, okay. A filter, something that. Yeah, that's right. So he's using this, combining this, because it's the industry and the craft, because this is his heritage, what we are talking about earlier, using your own history and your identity into your art. That's very fascinating. Marvelous. All right. And the last question I generally ask is any advice for the next generation? Preferably something a bit tangible kind of thing, not like believe in yourself kind of philosophical things. No, because too many people have said that. Believe in yourself and you can be whatever you like to be. And, and that's just... It's very American too. It's very American. And it's not true. You can't. You have to be more realistic in that. But my advice is see a lot of art, read a lot. Because can you imagine being a human being and the only thoughts in your head are your own? What a boring life you would have. Please go and experience art and read and broaden your mind. That's my advice. And become a better you. Fabulous. All right. Well, thank you very much for the time. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and the fact that I get to ask really dumb questions to really smart people. And you learned as much from the podcast as I am because I've learned a lot of things I've done wrong and a lot of things that I need to put more effort into for the rest of my career. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank Conceptual Citizen for writing a review and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you very much. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete.
The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Thank you.